As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. We get lucky. We get to catch up with Bob Michael twice in a week, once on a Sunday evening. And this is more normal, Bob. Good morning to you from JP Morgan Asset Management. Bob, Mike McKee messaged me earlier and he wanted to know, one, is Bob Michael on today? And two, what does Bob want me to ask in the news conference? What is it today, Bob? Well, I think he's got to ask that the Fed was set up, the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was designed to prevent a run on banks. So they must have seen this. They must have seen the depositor outflows. Is the, are they seeing anything else that worries them? And what is that? And I think there are things in the commercial property market. There are things in the bank loan market where the resets have doubled and tripled what borrowers are paying. So there's still a lot out there. So, Bob, how do they parse a message that goes from we want credit conditions to tighten to, oh, my goodness, it's not a financial crisis, but things are tightening too quickly? How do they parse that line to a market that doesn't like nuance? They don't need to, Lisa. They've told us they're data dependent. Look at the data. They've won. They don't need to pile on. Look at inflation. If you look at month-to-date 10-year tips, they're down 30 basis points to 2.1%. Inflation expectations are coming down. Look at the University of Michigan consumer sentiment, one-year inflation expectations. They're down the most in two years. That's pre when they started hike rates. They're at 3.8%. And then if you go back to the charter they were set up to prevent a run on banks, well, they pushed it to the point where they had to step in and stop a run on banks. So they've achieved the maximum pressure they needed to to bring inflation down. It's happening. It's in the data. You pause and you wait. Then how do you make sense, Bob, if they probably saw the outflows from depositors uh, from some of these banks before that speech, that testimony from Jay Power, where he opened the door to a 50 basis point rate hike? How do they signal that the scenario has changed so dramatically in two weeks, given that a lot of what you're talking about, the winning of their war, would have been won before what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank? It, honestly, it really doesn't matter. These are the long and variable impacts. They're already catching up to the economy. We're seeing it. They're starting to bite hard. What's going to happen over the next three to six months? Let's wait and see what happens. For, for sure, we've looked at every time the Fed has stopped hiking rates. On average, it's been about 13 months to recession. So they could stop here. And then let's see what happens over the next year. We think with quantitative tightening, it actually pulls that forward 
into the end of this year. So, Bob, at the start of the year, when credit was ripping, high yield was doing really well, you resisted the urge to pile in as well. So I'd be interested to know what you've actually been doing over the last couple of weeks as things have started to go the other way and you weren't on the wrong side of the trade, so to speak. Bob, what did you do? I'm holding on to our conservative position where we've had hedges in the CDX market. You're going to have to pry them out of my dying hands. This is the start. (laughs) This is not the end. So let's talk about spread levels. So spread right now is at 480. Was as tight as about 390 a number of weeks ago. Can you just talk me through Bob Levels? You and I have talked about this before, but the basic argument goes something like this. It's a higher quality index. It won't gap wider in the way that it has done in recessions previously. Bob, you've pushed back against that notion. Why? Yes, because I've lived through every other cycle in the high yield market. People forget this market isn't 100 years old. It's just over 30 years old. And you hear that same story all the time. This time it's different. But the problem is that fear always replaces greed. People are scrambling for up in quality. We've seen in the last week, you don't know where the problems are going to happen. So you just try to de-risk. Every single time high yield goes to a minimum credit spread of 800 basis points over, I think we're easily on track for that. I know last time I was on on Sunday, I think it was the evening, uh, we talked a little bit about non-bank lenders, which are us in the market. So we're already starting to hear from our clients that they want to know what we hold in their portfolios. They're asking all their managers. So we're going to start tightening credit conditions ourselves just because our clients don't want us to take the kinds of risks that they were comfortable a year or so ago. That's not just us. It's every manager. It's in the public markets. And it's for sure in the private markets. So, Bob, how much has that accelerated over the past two weeks? And John asked me earlier, even if this issue with some of the medium-sized businesses, uh, medium-sized banks, rather, is resolved, and we do get some sort of backstop that staves off some sort of contagion risk or any of these concerns, how much have credit conditions tightened over the past two weeks anyway that will be persistent? Well, they've tightened everywhere. We talked about the central banks waiting for those cumulative long variable uh, lags to catch up. So they're going to catch up. So they're unless they start cutting rates or ending QT, that's going to be progressive. So central banks are still tightening credit conditions. When you look at senior loan officer surveys, banks for sure have been tightening credit conditions. And I think with what's happened over the last couple of weeks, there's no going back on that. And then I talked about Uh, non-bank lenders. We're all doing the work for the Fed anyway. They can hit the pause button. The banks are still tightening credit conditions. And as I said, non-bank lenders are as well. I hate these analogies, Bob, but you mentioned commercial real estate. A lot of people are pointing at it. And if you could say where we are in terms of the devaluation in commercial real estate, are we at the beginning? Are we at the middle? How much further does it have to go? Well, it it depends where you are in the snake. I, I think for sure, Uh, that property companies are already having problems with offices in central business districts, right? And you're just now starting to see that in some commercial mortgage-backed securitizations. But there's the whole REIT market, there's the CMBS market, there's the whole regional bank market where a lot of their loans are into the commercial property market, and then there's the GSIP banks. So these things don't just tend to happen and go away. They tend to build 
and they're with us for a while. So, Bob, just a final question from me. A number of weeks ago, you said to me, the whole curve, three handle, twos out to 30s. We've seen that. Are you saying right the way down to 3%? Yes, I didn't say three handle. I said 3%. There we go. There's the curve. 3.00 3. minimum. Wow. <laughs> Wow, Bob Michael minimum. of JP Morgan to 30s. Asset Management. The brilliant Alicia Levine is alongside us today here in New York. She's got a line, Powell has no good choices today. There are no good choices today. I'm just going to whip through the price action and then we'll get Alicia's thoughts on it. Equity futures right now unchanged on the S&P 500. Yields up by a single basis point on a 10-year 362. We've talked about the journey of the two-year since the Fed last met from 4.1% all the way to 4.2% with a lot of zigging and zagging in between, Lisa. I feel bad for the two year. It's got to be tired. Its journey has been long. It's been tumultuous, and we've been all along. You, you don't the sound ride like someone it. who slept either. You feel bad for a, <laughs> for the front end of the yield curve. Look, you got to bear with us because we've all been up since for you know the past week mm. and examining Last week never all ended. of this. Well, it never ended, and we're dealing with head spinning realities, right? All of the complications you're just talking about parsing through, then try to give a market response to that, which always is wrong initially anyway. And it's always exactly what you don't think. So it's sort of, you know, what's the point? Let's go back to bed. Alicia Levine joins us right now, the head of equities and capital markets advisor at BMY Mellon Wealth Management. Alicia, wonderful to catch up with you. Great to be here today. No good choices today. No good choices today. 25? We do 25 because the market is giving the Fed 25 in the pricing. And so in a sense, it's the easier decision. I'm not sure they should do 25 here because I think what happened in the last couple of weeks was possibly the beginning of a credit issue um, as, as smaller and medium banks start to withdraw on credit provision. But the Fed will go 25. And as you said, it's all in the messaging. And as we've seen, sometimes the messaging can be really complicated. Um, I would look to Christine Lagarde and I'd look to the inflation number in uh, the UK this morning, as you were talking about earlier, as to signals of why we're going to do 25 today. And as to the dot plots, I think the dot plots pretty much stay on track here for those reasons. I think Christine Lagarde managed to message very well that they're keeping the two separate and can keep it separate. And I think that's what the Fed ultimately is going to do today as well. Let's take the headlines from Lagarde earlier. There's no trade-off between price and financial stability. We will not entertain trade-offs from the primary objective. What does that look like if Chairman Powell repeats exactly those same words later in the news conference? So I think you keep ongoing increases in the statement. Okay. If, if, if he keeps to that kind of, we're going to keep the two separate, and you, in your mind you need to keep this thing separate, then I think you keep the ongoing increases with the open-endedness. I don't think the dots change, but you do keep the ongoing increases. But being open to that the Fed has the tools necessary to deal with the financial stability issue. And those two things will be separate. In the end, as we've seen all over, you know, inflation on the way down has not been linear. And I think opening up the, the dovishness that the market may want to see risks that other piece of it. And it's, I think Lagarde really showed the way to how to, how to capture this right here. So I would, I would suspect that he's going to separate it as well. Now, did something actually happen in the real world two weeks ago with the banks? And I think the answer is yes, right? In the real world, cr credit contraction has likely accelerated. 
So let's take a step back and talk game theory, because that seems to be what we're all doing right now to try to game out what they're signaling versus what they're going to do versus what they know versus what you believe. And I wonder if, as a market participant, you think that Jay Powell has less credibility, not only in having the authority on what they're going to do, but having any extra visibility into the into the path of a market that has been highly, highly uh, indetermined. So I think Jay, Jay Powell's credibility credibility is intact here. He's been very single-minded on the inflation issue. There was some talk earlier in the in the other press conferences talking about disinflation 11 times, but I think ultimately that the pivot was real and I think the pivot is still there. And I think the thought that the Fed actually does have the tools to understand the financial stability issue and what's happening with the banks is a very real and true thing. And so if they hike today, it is a signal that they think they ring, ring fence this and can prevent further deterioration. So if you say that there really has been something material that has happened in the economy, What's your investing change as a result? Right. So that's the big question, right? We talk about the economy, but in the end, we have to invest our clients' money. So our thinking on this originally was that the recession seemed to be pushed out in maybe to the end of 2023 into 2024. Two weeks ago when that inflation, all those inflation reads came in really hot and the, the economy seemed to be on fire. What we've said today is that this event actually changes that. The, the recession comes back into 2023. Earnings likely go lower. We're pretty low in earnings this year anyway. We're neutrally weighted on equities. We never really went for the full, you know, disinflation is here, climb back in, hand over fist, get greedy, because we simply didn't think that this was going to be so easy to get out of. In the end, in the end, this is going to be a hiking cycle, the fastest in 40 years, 450 basis points today, 475 basis points in 12 months. How do you get out of this without a recession or without something cracking? Well, in fact, something did crack. Yep. So, and, and that's that tends to be not just one thing. So th when, when there's an issue in the regional banks, they pull back on lending. And that's what happens. And as you know, more than 50% of the lending to various sectors of the economy comes from these banks with $250 billion or under in assets. So let's work through the sequencing. Bank liquidity issues, credit issues because of tighter lending, recession gets brought forward. We can agree on the date when this really kicked off, February 8th, the Wednesday evening, overnight into Thursday. Wednesday, the 8th of March, 39.92 on the S&P. We're above that now. Right. Why? Because the market is pricing in that the regulatory authorities have ring-fenced this that they've prevented further deterioration in the system, in the banking system. Had there been doubt, you would have seen more of a deterioration, but it simply hasn't happened. So the equity market is saying, look, you know, the, the Fed and, and the FDIC and the regulatory authorities have, have done the right thing and they've done it well. And the stragglers left will be dealt with. All things being equal then, is a slower pace of rate hikes and potentially fewer of them, which is what people have been expecting and pricing in, stimulative for risk assets? It will be taken as such. It, it, it shouldn't be, but it will be taken as such. The market is on a hair trigger waiting for the pivot, right? I mean, if you think about starting last July, it was the pivot, then we pivoted from the pivot, then we went back to the pivot, then we pivoted from the pivot. I, it's nuts. It's nuts. <laughs> it, it's really nuts. I, I, I don't understand why that with a 6% inflation, the market is not understanding that actually the Fed is going to keep on hiking as long as they ring fence the stability issue. And 
they will keep on hiking. We're missing a point, aren't we? We're just kind of not trading the recession. We want to trade the recovery to the recession we haven't had yet. We want the trade after the trade. Totally. Right. There's been a different trade in the last couple of weeks. And, and, and the market wants the trade after the trade because it's all happened so fast. Think of how quickly those deposits left the bank, right? It was people on apps. So the systems move quicker. Trading has moved quicker. Regimes seem to move quicker. And the market wants to price it in before we get through the recession. Oh, no joke. I think we've had three different regimes in, in the first quarter alone. Just take a look three. at the two-year yield. I mean, I mean, we came into this year and it was all rate cuts, recession. Then it was boom, no landing, more hikes, maybe six. And now it's financial instability, pause, the hiking cycle's over. And it's March 22nd. We haven't it's, even finished haven't the fin- first quarter. We haven't finished Q1. Right. So the market keeps on pricing in the pivot. That's the key thing. We keep on coming back to it. We, we hold 3,800. We hold that level. I suspect we keep on bouncing around in this range between 3,800, 41, 4,200. It's going to be a very unsatisfying year because there will be signs that there's some credit cont- contraction along the way. Your earnings will come down. Our, our portfolios are, are prepared for that. We thought this six months ago. We never believed that there was no landing. How do you have no landing when you're hiking like this and you start from a 9% inflation rate? Just real quick here then, what do you tell clients? Look, we went, we went, um, we were underweight bonds last year, as we should have been. We went neutral on bonds, so we increased our weighting to bonds. We are conservative. We are telling clients it's going to be very volatile. We do think you actually end the year higher than you ended 2022. It's just not going to feel very good. So with our higher rating on bonds and our neutral on equities, we can pivot around there. But in the end, we don't hold cash in our portfolios. And so we do relative relative trades. And we think we're well positioned for this. In the end, the call on the real economy has been fairly, fairly accurate. I'll say that. It's it's what the market does with that, oh, which that's, is which that's is always which, the hard bit. which is always the hard bit. But I think that the the table pounding on bonds is the right call. I'd always prefer to be wrong about the economy and and just write accidentally about the market. That's correct. <laughs> you know, yeah, better to be lucky than right. Right, yeah. Alicia, this was great as always. Alicia Levine of BMY Mellon. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
The yields climbing just a touch higher, but the round trips that we have seen again and again, really uh, head spinning for people trying to get their head around where we are in terms of a disinflationary course or not. Jonathan Pingle among them. He is chief U.S. economist at UBS, joins us now. Jonathan, can you give us a sense of how much has changed for you over the past two weeks? Well, I mean, getting the magnitude exactly right right now is going to be just about impossible. I mean, I was listening to some of your earlier conversation with Jonathan. I mean, this is one of those things where we can definitely sort of sign the effect. I mean, if you thought about the first National Bank of Faro, um, maybe they're double checking their liquidity, (laughs) capital levels. You know, they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to be wondering what the bank examiners are looking for next. You know, on the margin, this does go, this, this is pretty likely to imply um, tighter credit going forward when credit was already tightening in the U.S. So, you know, we'll be watching the same things you all are watching with the H8 data, lending data for the provision of credit, but certainly it's a net negative in our expectation for the U.S. economy. I've heard that the Bank of Faro has an unlimited credit line out to AC Milan, <laughs> but I'm not going to uh, confirm that, and that is just according to sources. I'm curious, though, from your vantage point, we heard from a former Fed governor this morning that all things being equal, this is not a credit problem, that there's not necessarily the same degree of credit tightening that people are ascribing the recent turmoil uh, to the market that in fact, there still is a very big inflation problem. On the ground, what data are you looking at for your compass amid the noise? Well, you know, we are still getting, uh, you know, real-time weekly data on everything from lending, mortgage applications, initial claims. We are getting regular, you know, price signals from, you know, big data sources, whether it's airfares, used cars, right? So there's still a lot of data that's coming in every day that's going to allow us to assess, you know, what's unfolding in, in pretty close to real times these days. I mean, that was one of the things we really learned during the pandemic was, um, you know, the availability of a lot of these new data sources. So, you know, we are watching all of that, um, you know, in particular, the price data. But I, I think on net, you know, we were already starting to get bearish or were bearish uh, about the U.S. economic outlook, um, considering, you know, there were some tentative signs that the rebound in data we saw in January really wasn't much of a rebound. And I think if you really put yourself in the position of of, of, of a bank officer these days, you know, you, the guests are right. I mean, we don't look at this as a giant capital hole. It doesn't look like a sudden stop. Um, but on the margin, um, this does seem more likely to imply less provision of credit than more and less credit impulse for the economy usually isn't very good for growth. Which raises also the issue of whether the Fed Chair Jay Powell recognizes this today in the press conference. We heard from Betsy Duca, I was referencing her earlier, and she said this, Chairman Powell was clear he expected the projections to come out in the SEP, uh, the uh, summary of economic projections, to be higher. And I don't see any way that doesn't happen. And she thinks that's going to be the big surprise of today's press conference. Can you give us a sense of how much you agree with that and what that would mean for your estimates of how quickly recession would take hold? Well, we do think that, A, they're going to raise raise 25 basis points um, at today's meeting. And we do think that you know, the median the median dot is going to revise up for 2023 by 25 basis points compared to the December SEP. So... That might sound hawkish and it might be a surprise, but we also think this comes with very data-dependent language. I mean, we think they are going to put right in the statement uh, something along the lines of that any additional or any further increases in the target range will be dependent upon the economic data and its implications for the outlook. So I think when Chair Powell frames the SEP, he is going to frame it as 
And he's done this in the past. He doesn't, you know, it's not a commitment device in his view. And he's been quite frank about that. So we are expecting him to acknowledge that base case for the committee. You know, they do need to fight inflation. Um, but we do expect him to admit that this does uh, depend upon, you know, how events unfold going forward. Now, going to the credit impulse, though, we also do think he is going to make a strong case that the banking system is resilient, safe, sound, and well capitalized. So while he is going to deliver this message of monitoring, considering credit conditions, um, he is going to, I think, you know, unequivocally um, sound a confident tone um, about the banks. Which comes in tandem, his conversation in tandem with what we're going to be hearing from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen as she testifies in front of its Senate panel. So they have to be on the same page as we were talking about earlier, and they're probably going to speak to that same issue. I, though we are looking right now at a market that has repriced in rate hikes uh, and then repriced in rate cuts. And it's been this sort of ping pong match, as we've been talking about for a while between that. Right now, still pricing in cuts before the end of this year. Do you think that that's premature based on the rhetoric and based on the economic data that you're seeing come out? Well, the economic data would not on its surface imply the Fed should be cutting later this year. I mean, you know, our forecast for core PCE inflation for, you know, a week from now is that it's still going to be hung up at about 4.7%. Um, but, you know, we are forecasting that the Fed is going to be cutting rates later this year because, you know, we do expect a certain amount of disinflation to be setting in as we roll through the middle of the year. Um, and we expect to see a much weaker economy in the second half than the first half. So, um, you know, so, I mean, if you're looking at, you know, you know, we have low claims. Yes, we have, you know, elevated inflation right now. But our expectation is, uh, you know, what's been put in train with the rate hikes already, what we're seeing in credit conditions um, is going to lead to a meaningful slowdown later this year. Jonathan, how many times this year have you changed your forecasts? Not really. We haven't changed it a whole lot since last November. Um, I mean, the main thing we've changed in our forecast was uh, taking on board the upside surprise in the January employment report. And we did have to nudge up our inflation projections um, in a report this week because of the incoming January, February data. But, you know, the broad contour of, of GDP um, and the slowdown expected in the second half of the year has really been pretty much the same since we made a, a pretty big overhaul in the projections um, back in November. Um, where we switched from expecting a soft landing to expecting a hard landing. So how many times have you thrown up your hands in frustration at the narrative changes <laughs> that you've heard on Wall Street that have really informed what you're seeing in market pricing? Well, I mean, throwing up my hands as opposed to, you know, you go from times where you look like you're doing well to, uh, you know, the heaps of criticism being layered upon you. But, um, you know, but you know, the data is not going to go in a linear direction. I mean, I think for me, the big surprise was forecasting a 290,000 gain in the January employment report and then seeing 517 and falling out of my chair. But, um, you know, you know, been doing this a long time. You know, high frequency forecasting is difficult. There are surprises along the way. But I do think if we think about the starting point of the U.S. economy, where the level of activity has been pushed up very high by the fiscal stimulus that's faded, uh, we have undergone a very rapid monetary policy tightening cycle. And, you know, we're getting to a point now in the labor market where there's sort of more and more signs that, you know, hiring is kind of caught up with activity. You know, I think you're at a point now where, you know, Further fiscal drag and some headwinds for households this year, the ongoing impact of the monetary policy tightening, I think all points to a weaker second half. 
Jonathan Pingle, thank you so much for being with us. Jonathan Pingle of UBS. Imagine turning up to the Federal Reserve in August 2008. That was Betsy Duke, the former Fed governor. Betsy joins us right now. Betsy, can we start there? Can you describe what that was like, starting on the Federal Reserve in August 2008? So it was August 2008. I was sworn in... A- about 30 minutes before my first FOMC meeting, which was the last normal FOMC meeting there ever was. And um, after my second FOMC meeting, we went into the chairman's office and voted to lend $85 billion to AIG. So that's how I started my Fed career. Well, Betsy, can you tell me how different this moment is relative to what you went through all those years ago? Um, You know, it's different, but it's, it's the same. Um, you know, the Fed's job stays the Fed's job, regardless of what the, the current events are, whatever the crisis of the day. Um, the Fed has to keep its eye on what its job actually is. Well, let's talk about what its job actually is. There are dual mandates. One of them is uh, inflation. That is the first and foremost one. But it's also oversight. How much has the lack of supervision over certain banks complicated their role right now? I think supervision has been a complicated factor, and I think it's supervision, not regulation. Those terms are are often used interchangeably, but regulation applies to the the rules of the road, if you were. Supervision is being in the banks, paying attention to what's happening at each individual banks, not to banks as a whole. And that's where it seems to me that, that the problem lies. And this raises a question about how much signal there is from a Federal Reserve where the chair went before Congress and really opened the door to a 50 basis point rate hike just days before a collapse of one of the biggest banks going back to the financial crisis. I'm curious what you make of that and how much signal there will be in terms of their visibility and other problems in the banking sector today. So the the role of monetary policy is not to protect the balance sheet of the banks. And and the tools that the Fed has to deal with the financial system are very different than the tools that the Fed uses in monetary policy. So the primary tool in the financial system is the Fed's ability to lend. That's why the Fed was established to lend in liquidity crises, which which this at at its core is. So um, the, the facility that they established um, the weekend after SVB failed is right in their wheelhouse. That That is their primary tool for dealing with financial stability. A lot of people- and I think they'll separate it from, from the monetary policy decision. A lot of people argue that it's not quantitative easing, that this is not a reversal of quantitative tightening, that yes, the balance sheet rose by $300 billion, but it's a different mechanism. It's not buying, it's lending. It's a different type of stimulative effect. Do you draw the same distinction or do you think that this is basically the end of quantitative tightening? Um, Actually, they would have to offset the the increase coming from the the loans with a further sale of the securities on the balance sheet to offset the the quantitative easing, if you will, that's going to result from the balance sheet growing because of of the loans that they're making. If you go back to, again, 2008, the whole QE1 was not actually, did not change the size of the, the um, Fed's balance sheet at all. It simply replaced the lending that the bank had done during during the crisis um, with security. So it kept the Fed's balance sheet from contracting, but it didn't expand the um, Fed's balance sheet. It wasn't until QE2 and 3 that the Fed's balance sheet started to expand. Betsy, a lot of the post-crisis apparatus that the Federal Reserve came up with 
was designed to communicate low for longer. The dot plot was an effective tool to do that. You could just show going out years that we weren't looking to raise hikes, hike rates for a long, long time. Betsy, how do you think the dots will be used today for signaling? So at his last press conference, Chairman Powell was very, very clear that he expected the projections to come out in the SEP, the Summary of Economic Projections. He expected those dots to be higher with the new projections. And I don't see any way that that doesn't happen. So um, the decision in the room needs to, for Fed's credibility, I think needs to match what its projections are. So I would focus not just on what the decision is today, but what do those projections say about what the terminal rate is? And I think that's going to be the big surprise. Betsy, you think that they're going to increase those dots. They're going to increase the projection of where Fed funds rates will ultimately end up despite some of the turmoil recently. What's going to be the justification for that? Are they going to double down on this idea of inflation and that we still haven't gotten restrictive enough despite signs of credit tightening that has been accelerated over the past few weeks? Well, the way I interpreted the comments was that the expectation was that 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 inflation would come down more slowly than they had expected. And the dots come from expectations of inflation. If you remember, there was a lot of discussion in that press conference. And at one point, Chairman Powell said, you know, my forecast is different than yours. If your forecast is right, your your rate projection will be right. But if my forecast is right, then your rate forecast is going to be wrong. And, and, and I think it'd be a mistake to not remember that, not pay attention to it. Betsy, just one final thing. One thing we've talked about over the last couple of weeks is whether the Fed knows things that we don't know when it comes to financial stability. When you watch the news conference later, are we watching a chairman that knows things that we don't know about the financial system? I think you will find that he probably, he certainly knows things that we don't know. But whether they are things he's trying to hide, I don't think that's necessarily true. Again, his credibility is his most important asset. And so he's not going to be trying to hide anything. But when they talk about the strength of the banking industry, right now the banks are strong. Capital is strong. Asset quality is extremely good. This is, um, this is an interest rate risk issue, a liquidity issue. And, you know, it goes back to the basics of banking. This is more like the SNL crisis than it is like 2008. What are the flows of information that the Fed has access to in real time that we don't see, Betsy? Um, I, I don't know how much it, it's, it's really that different. I mean, they get a lot of information and you have a staff that compiles that information and um, reports it out on a regular basis. The, the banking information is going to be coming through the, the, the supervisory activities in the, in the reserve banks. And my guess is right now that the supervisors are in every bank looking to see what the liquidity risk management looks like, what does the interest rate risk management look like, and what does the capital look like? Because you can plug a temporary liquidity hole with the borrowing that the Fed's doing, and that will keep banks from having to sell the securities that they own. But if those deposits are gone forever, if there's a shift in the in the um, industry from the smaller banks to the larger banks and it remains permanent, then that's a problem for, for the, the smaller bank portion of the industry. Betsy, this was wonderful. I'd love to do this again ahead of the next Fed yeah. decision. Thank you. All right. Betsy Do, thank you. The former Fed governor. 
Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The next guest is really someone with tremendous experience, both from the Treasury Department, World Bank, and also in the banking industry extensively. David Malpass, who is World Bank President, joining us here in our studios. I want to start because a lot of people draw parallels to 2008. And given your experience there, you were chief economist, top rated uh, economist at Bear Stearns. Are there parallels to that moment and the one we're in now? I think there are parallels and differences. The parallels are there was really a maturity mismatch at some institutions, uh, and the Fed had been raising rates. Remember, a long period of rate hiking leading into uh, 08. Uh, and, but, but then some big differences. One is this time, uh, the discount window is available to, uh, to the, the major institutions. That wasn't the case then. Uh, and so that gives some backstop, and you're seeing it uh, really play out now. And another big uh, difference is the Fed itself is buying uh, huge amounts of duration, and other central banks are as well. ECB and Bank of Japan are holders of giant amounts of duration, uh, which wasn't the case in 2008. They were, at, at that time, remember, central banks only only owned treasury bills. So that creates a f- different complexion to the market and a di- different set of tools that the regulators have to intervene. So today, I think the, the big issue is where is growth going to come from into the future? Before we get to that point, and I know you want to bleed that over into uh. the rest of the world, which is an important point, I want to talk about the similarities. You talk about a liquidity mismatch. A lot of people draw the distinction. A liquidity mismatch is not a credit crisis, is not a credit crunch. But back in 2008, and actually I would argue earlier, the liquidity mismatch led to a credit crunch. How close is that sort of uh, direct parallel, this sort of direct bleed over into credit conditions? As uh, interest rates are held down, which was the case in 04, 05, 06, and now in this uh, current uh, or over the last 10 years, then that causes asset prices to go up. So there's a workout period after that. So I I think that's what we're in now. How do you adjust asset prices if yields are going to be much higher than what you thought two years ago or one year ago? And that's the challenge facing the market. How do you allocate the losses? I'm hoping that they 
they don't go to the poor, to developing countries, and to average taxpayers. The and issue is if you've created all that asset price um, boom, uh, can the can the losses be allocated back into the same uh, markets? And that that's a big challenge. So could you elaborate a little bit on the disproportionate holding of the burden that you see in some of the developing nations that may affect the growth profile of the world? Over the last... 10 years or so, there was this big concentration of wealth in a narrow group in the advanced economies. That was fueled uh, by both the fiscal deficits, the huge run-up in the in the uh, debts uh, across the advanced economies, and also the central banks themselves buying duration. That supports asset prices. Long-term assets go up when there is a giant buyer, constant buyer uh, of those assets. Uh, and so that leaves not enough capital elsewhere in the world. World. We've seen the slow growth in developing countries, in part because there, there's not good access to global capital markets. And now going forward, the challenge is a lot of the world's capital is going to be used by the advanced economies to keep rolling over the debt. Uh, so a, a big challenge for billions of people around the world is where is there going to be available capital? They have this big population growth in many countries, uh, and yet the capital goes to countries that have declining populations. So how much does that lower your projection for global growth? And how much has that lowered it even over the past couple of months? Uh, we we had lowered it substantially a year or a year and a half ago, um, recognizing that there was that you know inflation really was a challenge. That the central banks were going to be raising cost of capital goes up, so growth forecasts go down. So in the latest, what we've seen is uh, advanced economy growth expectations had gone up uh, some late last year. That's the U.S. and China in particular, uh, as China lifted the um, the, uh, the the uh, the embargo, the lockdown, uh, and so as as we're looking at it now, the g- growth is slow but positive in advanced economies, but in developing countries, not much investment taking place. That, I think, is the big challenge. I'll be giving a big speech tomorrow at CSIS in Washington, D.C. on the importance of private uh, private capital enabling. How? Uh, what are the tools and techniques, and the World Bank's in the middle of it, trying to get countries to be more attractive to capital investment? In the meantime, we do get this Fed decision later today. How does that connect to the stripping out of capital from some of the developing world if the Fed does go ahead and hike rates by 25 basis points and increase their forecast for where the terminal rate ends up? What kind of magnified effect could that have? I heard you talking before. They'll be sending signals of what the what the prospect is. I think important is uh, for the U.S. and the advanced economies to think about how do we encourage more supply, and that brings down the inflation rate. So central banks can be more involved or recognize they are they are affecting the lending that goes to small businesses. Uh, and so, are there ways with regulatory policy or with the bond uh, with the uh, this duration uh, purchasing that the central banks do. So so my view is that when central banks buy duration, that actually ends up slowing growth on average. And if you look back over the last 10 years, there's been this anomaly that they're buying huge amounts of bonds, and yet you're not getting the, the, the growth rate that you expected from that. So going forward, I think there has to be a really deep dive into how do we get more growth and capital allocation 
corruption worldwide. Until then, given that all things being equal, a lot of central banks are turning to the same playbook and you're actually seeing the balance sheet re-expand in the U.S. How slow could global growth get? Yeah, uh, I think it can be even a, a recession, and that's not off the table. The the latest a global recession. Uh, you could have a global recession. We define that as when the the growth rate isn't uh, equivalent to the population growth rate. So you have people moving backward on average. Um, th- that depends a lot on the big on the advanced economies. The U.S. is the is the by far the biggest economy, and so its growth rate matters. Uh, and so you people are. Watching exactly what's going on in the in the uh, loan officer survey, for example, there was just a reference uh, to that on your show. That's a that's an important one. Are banks lending, given that they see this uh, these difficulties? So, all things being equal, are the chances of a global recession much greater today than they were two huh. weeks ago? No, I I, w- I would not say that. The, the, there was a there was a recognition of individual bank problems. They were uh, strongly dealt with by regulators. So the bigger issue, rather than looking at the near term impact, I think we have to just stay with the idea of what's going to be done for for the next three year growth rate of the world. How do you get out of this uh, kind of trap of uh, higher and higher interest rates? And I think the solution has to be more output how do you, how do you how do you get more services more goods into the global markets in order to stop the inflation trend Given that, what do you hope Jay Powell does today? Huh. No, I, I, he, he's, the, he's the policymaker. <laughs> like, I'm, Thank I'm sure he's going to send very strong signals. <laughs> well, I'm sure, uh, and I'm sure people will read into them. Yeah. And why are you in New York? Uh, there's a big UN conference uh, today on water. Water is really important. Clean water for people. It helps children grow to their full height, and uh, it helps uh, uh, agriculture be able to produce. So big conference on that. And I'm also doing other, other events in New York. David Malpass, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. David Malpass, the president of the World Bank. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.